We turn to John 15 for our scripture reading this morning. Gospel according to John chapter 15. We'll begin reading at verse 26, and then we read into chapter 16 to verse 16. So John 15, beginning at verse 26, we hear the inspired, infallible word of God. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father, nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. A little while and ye shall not see me. And again a little while and ye shall see me. Because I go to the Father. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take as our text verses 7 through 11 of chapter 16. Nevertheless I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, on this Pentecost Sunday, we rejoice that the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of Christ, 
has come into our hearts in order to take His place within us. It's a wonder of grace that God has made personal contact with His people as the redeemed of the Lord. God came in the person of Jesus Christ who walked among us, who did miracles and mighty wonders. But then He ascended up into heaven. God comes and He remains in His children in the person of the Holy Spirit and His indwelling within our hearts. Now, it's the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who performs the wonder of salvation within us. Christ earned all of these blessings for us. How will they be applied to our account? And that's the powerful wonder work of the Holy Spirit. Christ is not merely with us. He left us so that He could return as the Spirit of Jesus Christ and dwell within us. It's essential that we understand clearly the truth of the Holy Spirit in connection with the Father and the Son. And that's what Jesus here is teaching in this discourse from John 14 all the way to John 17. He's teaching the crucial place that the Spirit occupies in connection with the Father and the Son. Never is the Spirit divorced from the two. But the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, labor together in the glorious work of salvation. And verse 7 focuses on the fact that Jesus will tell the truth. And then later on in verse 13, the Spirit of truth will guide us into all truth. Important it is for us to know the truth concerning the Holy Spirit. Now this is important, especially in the context of church history. The Reformation of the 16th century recovered the biblical teaching of the Holy Spirit as personal sanctifier. That teaching had been lost in the sacramentalism of the Roman Catholic Church. The emphasis of the Roman Catholics was on external It was on the sacraments. It was on the miraculous wonders that were tied to the sacraments. The fact that the bread became the body of Christ. That the wine was transformed into the blood of Jesus Christ. And that salvation then was possible merely by eating and drinking. It was an external wonder work. The mystics divided the Spirit from Jesus Christ and from His work. They separated the two. They wanted spiritual feelings that were different from that which was set forth in the Word of God. They wanted spiritual feelings, but they realized that those feelings were contrary to some of God's commandments. And so they tried to divorce the two, using the Spirit to perform things that would bring glory to the Spirit, things that would bring glory to themselves. Divorcing the work of the Spirit from the Word and from the work of God and Jesus Christ. The result then is that the Holy Spirit is associated with healings, associated with speaking in tongues and all kinds of other things that draw attention merely to the Spirit and to the individuals that are involved. Apart from Christ. Apart from His work of salvation. That emphasis continues in our day. But thankfully, the Reformation guided the church back to the Word of God. The Reformation taught the Spirit's work cannot be separated from, it cannot be divorced from the work of God, the Father, 
and God the Son. And our confessions demonstrate that. The Heidelberg Catechism already in the first question and answer set forth the importance of the Holy Spirit's work. By His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. The Reformation restored the Holy Spirit to His proper role. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit works in us to make us live unto God, to show forth the praise of God. In our Lord's farewell discourse here, in John 14 through 17, even John 13 already through 17, one-fourth of the entire book of John devoted to this discourse, Jesus is teaching much about the Holy Spirit. And he's emphasizing that after his return to the Father, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to take his place as comforter in the hearts and lives of God's people. And today, beloved, we consider verses 7 to 11 here of chapter 16, which is our Lord's promise to his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come as the convictor of sin. We look at that one aspect of the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit's work to convict of sin. We take as our theme the convicting work of the Spirit, noting the necessity of His coming, His spiritual work, and the comfort. It's expedient for you that I go away, Jesus says in verse 7. In other words, Jesus is saying to His disciples, even though you're all distressed, even though you're all concerned about the way I'm talking to you and the fact that I'm expressing to you that I'm going to leave you, you need to understand it's good for me to leave. I must go away. Jesus had reached the end of his earthly ministry among them. And these were among the last words that Jesus would speak to them in his life of humiliation while among them before he went to the awful death on the cross. And in these last words, Jesus is preparing them for the loss that they're going to sustain by his departing. But emphasizing the necessity of his leaving and the important labor that he's going to conduct. He needs to leave because there is important work that he has to take up in heaven. Through this, although the disciples don't understand this, they can't fathom it, Jesus is comforting them. He's comforting them with promises. Promises that are so great and so wondrous that the loss they would experience through his departure would be considered as nothing compared to these glorious promises. Just think of John 14, the first three verses. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. What a marvelous comfort. Jesus is saying, the promises are so great, the things that I am going to accomplish are so wonderful that you're going to realize the necessity of my departure. And you're going to be able to know a joy that's unspeakable. 
Another aspect of the startling nature of this discourse is the fact that their perplexity and their worry and their concern is nothing compared to the awful valley of death that Jesus is about to go through. And while Jesus knows the suffering that is going to come upon him, they're the ones that are all filled with concern and worry. Jesus is confident. Jesus is composed. He's going forward with certainty. Even though he's aware of a suffering that they cannot begin to imagine or comprehend. How is Jesus able to go forward? The joy that awaits him bolsters him and strengthens him with a view to the sorrows that are before him. He knows that the joy... He knows that the exalted place of glory will far exceed any suffering, any struggles that are necessary yet here on this earth. And beloved, that's the faith that God works in our hearts. God gives us the faith to believe that the joy that awaits is so marvelous, it's so wondrous, that nothing that we experience here on earth can begin to compare. And so Jesus is calm. Jesus provides words of comfort, words of encouragement, words of promise, words of assurance, words of comfort to his disciple. And the heart of that comfort is the fact that after a short season, they are going to experience a joy that the world can never know. They're going to experience the fullness of the wondrous salvation that God has given them in Jesus Christ. He's preparing them to be taken with him to the Father. He has to leave in order to prepare the mansions that will embrace all of his people in order that they might dwell with him to all eternity in glory. That's the focus of Jesus here in John 14 through 17. He is accomplishing a salvation that is so marvelous and so wondrous that his children, every last one of them, will be translated to be with him where he is in order that he and his people might be one. That's what rules in the conversation here of Jesus with his disciples. The way that he is going to bring this about is in the way of sanctifying them. And that sanctification is going to take place by the work of the Holy Spirit, convicting them of sin and leading them to repentance. How is it that God can be one with His people? They must be holy even as He is holy. They must be righteous even as He is righteous. And Jesus Christ is that righteousness. He is that sanctification, that wisdom for the sake of His people. And so Jesus is teaching them the importance that As Redeemer, He needs to die for the sake of His people. There is no other deliverance from sin. He alone is able to make the payment that's necessary. He had to leave to pay the price by which God's wrath would be satisfied. It was necessary for Jesus to ascend up into heaven so that He could pour out His Spirit. All the blessings of salvation... And the work of sanctification and the spread of the gospel would depend on the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus had to leave in order to accomplish that wonder. 
Now we know and we can see the evidence of the power of Pentecost. We just see the transformation that took place among the disciples. Previous to Pentecost, the disciples are confused, they're concerned, they're huddled together in the upper room, they're frightened. They don't exactly understand or know what's all transpiring. And then after Pentecost, they're emboldened. They're out preaching, they're out teaching now. And their preaching now conveys a power. It comes with authority. And what is that power? What is that authority? It's the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin writes, far more advantageous and far more desirable is that presence of Christ by which he communicates himself to us through the grace and power of his Spirit than if he were present before our eyes. That's an important truth for us to understand. Again, the Roman Catholics emphasize Jesus is here. He's here in the bread. He's here in the wine. Emphasizing a physical presence. And Calvin, conveying the truth of Scripture, says, No, you don't want Jesus here physically. Far more important it is that He dwells in your hearts. That His work of grace is taking place within you. And for that purpose, Jesus then had to leave in order to establish a residence within the hearts of His children. Pentecost was necessary for the accomplishment of redemption. Jesus had earned all the spiritual benefits through his perfect obedience and his perfect sacrifice. He had accomplished everything that was necessary for redemption. All those benefits had to be applied to his people. And how would that take place? Through the power of the Spirit, those benefits would become ours. And through the work of the Spirit, those benefits would be given to his own. The presence of Christ within us by His grace and Holy Spirit. And so Pentecost is the fulfillment of many festivals that took place in Israel. There were at least four different names that were given to that festival. It was a festival that went back to the Mosaic Law. And it was supposed to be celebrated by the Old Testament church from the time they left Egypt and had received the laws of God at Sinai. So they left Egypt, they received those laws at Sinai, and God now gave them these instructions as to the keeping of that feast. Pentecost met the 50th day, which was pointing to the 50th day after the Sabbath day of the Passover week. And so after they had left Egypt, they had the Passover now established, which they were to keep. 50 days after the Sunday of the Passover, they were to maintain the Feast of Pentecost. It was celebrated on the first day of the week, and it was one of the three great feasts of Israel. The Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, was four months later. This Feast of Pentecost was also called the Feast of Weeks, because it was celebrated seven weeks, 49 days, and then one day after the Passover. It was also called the Feast of Harvest, because the timing of it had to do often with the first fruits of the harvest being gathered in about this time. So it was the day of the first fruits. It was a celebration that looked back on the promise and the wonder of God providing the harvest that He would accomplish. 
They look forward to the spiritual harvest. So the earthly harvest was a picture of the spiritual. It was an event that looked forward to the wonder by which God would take His people into the fullness of that life with Him. And we can understand then the connection to Pentecost. The wonder by which Christ would live within the hearts of His people and bring them into the joy of that salvation. God chose this Hebrew feast as the day to do something wonderful, something miraculous around 30 A.D. with the pouring out of the Spirit on Pentecost. This was an expected wonder. Jesus had told the disciples about it not only, but it had been prophesied. Joel spoke of it in Joel 2. This was a wonder that John the Baptist talked about in Matthew 3, verse 11. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And now in the upper room, in these discourses of Jesus with his disciples, he promises that this will take place. At the occasion of Jesus' ascension, as he's going up into heaven, he promised that he would send his Spirit. And so now we have that fulfillment being set forth before us. The Spirit comes to accomplish a spiritual labor. He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Chiefly, the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus to convert, to teach, and to comfort His people. We find references throughout the Bible to that wondrous work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit regenerates God's elect, according to John 3, verses 5-8. through 8. It's the Spirit that works that wonder of regeneration. The Spirit enlightens the mind, according to Ephesians 1, verses 17 and 18. It's the Spirit that glorifies Christ through that enlightened mind, according to John 16. So that now, the regenerated believer who has an enlightened mind, focuses that mind on Christ and gives Him the glory. That Spirit converts the elect who hear the Gospel. It leads them into faith. And to repentance, Ephesians 2, verse 8. That faith, a gift from God. The Spirit sanctifies the people of God by creating the fruit of that Spirit within them. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 18, speak of the fruit of the Spirit. And those are wonder works that Jesus accomplished, which are now applied in the hearts and lives of God's elect, regenerated children. The Spirit, according to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, transforms the mind, transforms the life of God's children. The Spirit gives all spiritual gifts, according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14. The Spirit gives gifts of leadership in the church, pastors, elders, deacons, according to Ephesians 5. The Spirit helps us pray according to Romans 8. The Spirit is our comforter, our advocate, our teacher. So that all of these passages demonstrate the crucially important work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's children. The Spirit is poured out in our hearts as the one now who leads and guides us into the joy and wonder of our salvation. He gives spiritual gifts to His people so that more and more they look like Christ and they resemble Christ and they increase 
as image bearers of Jesus Christ in holiness, righteousness, and in true knowledge. God equips the saints in this way for their pilgrimage here on earth. A pilgrimage that is busy witnessing, preaching, teaching. How can we do that? How would we do that? It's the work of the Spirit within us that enables us to know the Scriptures, to speak of them, to witness concerning their power, and it's the Spirit that raises up men to proclaim the glorious gospel of salvation. Now, in the foreground of this passage is the idea of reproving, that is, convicting, bringing to a knowledge of sin, a knowledge of righteousness, a righteousness that's in Christ, and a knowledge of judgment. The apostle here sets forth, or Jesus here sets forth, the power of the apostles' preaching. How is it that the preaching of the apostles had such a power? How is it that today preaching has such a power? How is it that the words of a man are able to cut like a knife into the heart of an individual, pricking and exposing and giving no peace with regard to sin? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus says, go preach the gospel. And as you preach, trust the power of that preaching is going to be the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is going to be convicting. The Spirit is the one that's going to be exposing, comforting, leading, guiding. Now he elaborates here in verse 9, of sin because they believe not on me. To reprove again is to convict. It's to convince. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to convict and convince us of our sin. What is sin? Sin is rebellion against God. It's a rebellion that takes many, many different forms and all the many different words for sin refer to the different aspects of that rebellion. It was a rebellion that was evident when the world rejected Jesus, when they crucified the Son of God. And that sin, that rebellion against God, makes man worthy of everlasting death, judgment, and hell. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of God's people of their sin, to bring them to repentance. We can see evidence of that marvelously in Acts 2 on the occasion of Pentecost. At Pentecost, the people are wondering, what's going on? And you children remember, someone said, oh, maybe they're drunk with wine and that's why they're speaking these funny things. And Peter then gets up and says, no, these men aren't drunk. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to preach about the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 being realized now. And in the course of that sermon, Peter now shows a boldness that had not been his previously. And Peter, in Acts 2 verses 22 to 24, sets before them the horror of their sin against the majesty of Almighty God. He sets before them the holiness of God and the horror of their sin. And as he does so, he says, you took Jesus Christ and with wicked hands you crucified him. Now what's the fruit? The response of those who heard was this. They were convicted. We read in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart 
And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Previous to this, Peter would have stood up and tried to tell them that they had crucified Jesus. They would have mobbed him. They would have tried to kill him, we would expect. All of a sudden now, there's an altogether different response. The response is such that they're brought to their knees. The words of a mere man convict them and drive them to their knees in sorrow and repentance. That's not merely the work of a man. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit used those words to penetrate into their very inner being in order to convict them. And that's the wonder of the gospel. As the preaching goes forth, that preaching is not merely words of men. The preaching displays the power of the Spirit. And that was evident immediately in the work of the apostles as they go out on their mission journeys. What's the fruit? The word goes forth and there's repentance unto salvation. There's men and women convicted of their sin, brought to confess that sin. Such is the wonder, beloved, of the work of the Spirit. God raises up His church Through the church, God commissions men to proclaim the gospel. And as that gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit knows His own. And the Holy Spirit applies that word to the hearts of His own. And beloved, you know the power of that Spirit. It's like He's speaking straight to me. Even though the minister doesn't know what's going on. He wasn't in your home this past week. But the Spirit was. And the Spirit now works mightily to convict. The Spirit exposes that sin. The Spirit works the wonder of repentance. He works the wonder by which we're willing to say, I'm sorry. We turn from sin. That's the power of God's grace within us. No mere man, no mere woman is going to say, I'm sorry. But by the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, The Holy Spirit exposes their sin, brings them to confess that sin before the living God. And it's the Holy Spirit's work that brings them to see the righteousness of Jesus Christ as their own. Again, beloved, you know that work. The guilt, the shame, the increased awareness of sin. As the Spirit works, the fact that there's no peace, can't escape it. I know my own depravity. I know my own misery. And I know specifically that which I've done, that I ought not have done. And the Spirit then works in us the grace to confess that sin before God and to know the wonder and the joy of forgiveness. A power work for the sake of His people. If His children would not know their sin and would not confess their sin, they never would know the joy of salvation. So Jesus again says, this is necessary. My spirit needs to come in order that it dwell within you to bring you to know the joy of your salvation. And that joy is known in the way of the convicting power of the spirit. But the spirit also works broader than just within the church. And the reference here is to a broader work. Talking about the fact that he will reprove the world of sin. The Holy Spirit so works in the world of the ungodly that there is no excuse 
for their sin, and they know it. They know that they stand guilty before the living God. Their evil hearts are exposed, and they stand before God with no recourse. There's no one they can blame. They can't blame God. They can't try to find blame outside themselves. They know that they are guilty. How does the Spirit do that? Romans 1 and Romans 2 talk about the Spirit doing that through creation. So that even though a man, a woman doesn't even have a Bible, they know that there's a God. And they know that they stand before that God with an obligation to do what's right. And they know what's right and what's wrong. Such is the work of the Almighty God with regard to the wicked. Now the work of the Spirit in the wicked is not a gracious work. It's not a work of love. It's a work of reproof. It's a work by which they are left without an excuse. They know there's a God. They know that that God demands worship. They see His might. They see His power displayed in the creation about them. And they know that if they die in their sins, they will face Him as their judge. And there's no salvation to those who refuse to repent. The Spirit convicts even the wicked, leaving them without excuse. So that on judgment day, no one, that is no one, will stand before God and say, but I didn't know any better. No one will stand before God on judgment day and say, but but it's your fault because you made me this way. They will know their own unworthiness. And they will know that there is no entrance into heaven on the basis of their works. All will know that they are guilty. They stand before God as those who are damned and those who are worthy of hell. Such is the power work of the Spirit. Not only in the hearts of His children to drive us to our knees to see the cross and to see the wonder of salvation, but also with regard to the world leaving them without an excuse for their rebellion and their wickedness. But also of righteousness. And that's the marvelous wonder. God doesn't leave us on our knees. God brings us to see the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ. God not only convicts us of our sins, but He drives us to the cross. Jesus Christ was a righteous, holy man. The Jews charged him with being a wicked man, immoral, a blasphemer. Peter stands up in Pentecost and he says, over against those false accusations that the Jews raised against Jesus, here is who he was. And Peter asserts, Jesus was God's own son. He was the fulfillment of the Psalms. He's Lord and King as prophesied in Psalm 110. He came to do the will of his heavenly Father. And God raised him up for our righteousness. The empty tomb testified to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He was raised for our justification. The Holy Spirit exposes the filth and the corruption of our natures. The Holy Spirit brings us to see there is no righteousness of myself. There is no righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. My best works are as filthy rags, deplorable in God's eyes, even as one who's regenerated. My works can never serve as the foundation, the basis 
of my salvation. Over against those who ridicule the Christ, those who mock the Christ, those who persecute His saints, the Spirit works an adoration for. The Spirit works a love for Jesus Christ by which we cling to Him and we embrace Him and we know Him as our Lord and Savior. Jesus here in John 16 is addressing that opposition that we will face. These things have I spoken unto you, verse 1, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. We're going to be persecuted. Persecution is real. That persecution is going to be intense. And why? Because of your union with Christ. But God, by His Spirit, works. Not then a separating from Christ and shaming, ashamed to be part of Him. Rather, the Spirit works in us a joy in Him. The wonder of His righteousness and the faith by which we embrace Him as our Lord and as our Savior. We cling to Him, confessing that He is alone our righteousness. And faith works in us the knowledge of that union that is ours with Christ. We are united with Christ. And united with Him, we will share also in the joy of that glorious mansion that He's preparing for us. We know what it is by the wonder of God's grace to be found in Christ. He is my righteousness and Him is my forgiveness. At Judgment Day, God will cause the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be made known to all men. Every man, woman, and child that ever lived will declare that God is righteous in all His works and ways. The event by which God will be justified in all His works is called the theodicy. That is God being justified. The final vindication of God's righteousness and holiness. All the sins of men, all of their actions exposed before them, and every single man, woman, and child that ever lived brought to their knees to confess. God is righteous. God is just to send me to hell. No one will object to God's just judgment. Those that thought that God was unfair, perhaps, will see, no, God is not unfair. All of His actions have been good. They've been right. And they will confess that they deserve just punishment in hell. Such is the righteousness that's displayed of God and the judgment then. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. That's the devil. The prince is Satan. And he will be destroyed. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. We read in John 12, verse 31. Satan was defeated, his kingdom was crushed, and Jesus now is exalted as Lord and Prince. And all men everywhere are held accountable for their actions by which they exalted the devil instead of Jesus Christ. The Spirit convicts so that God's children repent. They're brought to salvation. They're brought to understand and confess their sin. Beloved, repentance is a work of the Spirit. It's a gift of God. This is not anything that we are able to accomplish of ourselves. The people of God are brought to repentance by the wonder of the Holy Spirit. 
And we see the folly then of walking in the service of the devil. We see that there's no joy found in the ways of sin, in the ways of the devil and the ways of his kingdom. God convicts and God brings us to see the folly of pursuit in the ways of sin. The ways of sin will result in damnation and judgment. But thanks be to God for the work of his spirit convicting us and driving us to the cross. And so there's comfort, beloved. There's unspeakable comfort. The disciples were reassured that the Holy Spirit would go before them and would direct their way. They needed a leader. They needed someone who would show them the way that they would go. As witnesses of Jesus Christ, they would press on. And they would press on in the work that God had given them to do. They wouldn't go forward in their own strength. They couldn't, and they knew that. But it was the strength of the Lord through His Spirit that would be their guide as they promoted the cause of Christ. And beloved, similarly for us, what is the strength and power of the church? It's the Spirit. As the Spirit goes forth, as the Spirit of the risen and exalted Savior to gather His church by His Word. What is the power of the preaching? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. What's the power with which we witness What's the power with which we go forward seeking to say no to the ways of sin and yes to the things of God? It's the power of the Spirit that guides us and leads us in the way everlasting. The Spirit using the Word. The Word as the power unto salvation. Beloved, the wonder of Pentecost is that the church continues to know those effects of the Spirit. We are the people of God. We are the people of the Incarnation. The people of Calvary. We are those who are the people of the Resurrection. We're the people of the Ascension. And we are those who are the people of Pentecost. We are those who are united to Christ and we're found in Him. And we will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. The Holy Spirit is given to men and women, so that He dwells in us. We who are created out of the dust of the earth as a clay vessel, fashioned by the hand of Almighty God, breathed into so that we receive the breath of life, sinful of ourselves, are taken by God and are brought into the most intimate communion that one can know. The Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of God, true and eternal God, lives in our hearts. He's given to persons of clay and dust. He's given to sinners that God in His Spirit dwells with us and is willing to dwell with us. Is a wonder of wonders. In the Old Testament, God was pleased to dwell among His people in the tabernacle that they would build for Him. God was unapproachable, in essence. They could not get close to Him without the mediator of the high priest. Between God and those vessels of clay, there was a distance. A distance that could never be overcome by their offerings and by their sacrifices. Never could the people know intimate communion with God, the Holy One. 
At Pentecost, that changed forever. Today, God makes individual believers His dwelling place. He makes you and me temples of His Holy Spirit. So that the Holy Spirit dwells within each of us, young and old, who are God's own. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 states, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Holy Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Beloved, this is the wonder of the cross. This is the wonder of Jesus' work. When he paid the price of sin, the distance now between God and man was overcome. The wealth of Pentecost is at that distance, is gone. And God now comes to live within our hearts, to dwell with us, to abide in us, and to keep and preserve us to all eternity, so that nothing can separate us from the wonder of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing. The Spirit leads us. The Spirit leads us to know the truth. The Spirit leads us to understand the things of God's kingdom. The Spirit causes us to see our sin. The Spirit draws us to the cross. That Spirit, beloved, at work in your hearts, leading you, guiding you to confess your sin and to know the wonder and joy of the gospel. That's the comfort that you and I need. And that's the comfort of which Jesus spoke here in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. The comfort by which He convicts us of sin, drives us to our knees in repentance, causes us to see His righteousness as the righteousness alone by which we are justified, and gives us to know victory from judgment. That's the wonder of Pentecost, beloved. By faith we lay hold upon the Spirit of Jesus Christ as our Spirit. And we hear the admonition, grieve not the Spirit. Don't continue in the ways of sin and rebellion. Repent. Turn to God. Know the joy and the wonder of that salvation that's in Jesus Christ. And God works in us a reason to joy and to rejoice in His grace and His mercy. That He, even now, has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us that where He is, there also we will be. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, work in us the knowledge of our sin. Work in us confession and repentance. And give us to know the unceasing joy and the wonder that is ours in Christ. Drawing us to Thyself in love that we might know and believe that nothing can separate us from the wonder of that love, and that we are privileged to dwell with Thee now and to all eternity. Grant that we might know more and more the joy and the wonder of that union with Christ. Amen. We turn to Psalter number 354.